It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesday uh, version of Potpourri. I want to say I'm going to bounce around because that sounds haphazard. I'm going to go from topic to topic, uh, things that I hope that you will find interesting, certainly things I've been thinking about. Uh, We'll start in the House. Democrats picked Hakeem Jeffries as their new leader to replace Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Congressman Jeffries and I were Uh, on the Judiciary Committee together. I also had a relationship, friendship with him um, outside the committee room. Very smart, very affable. Uh, I sat beside him on a plane. We were flying somewhere together, and uh, and I'm normally not one to talk to whoever is unfortunate enough to be sitting beside me on an airplane, but he's a very affable guy. So, look, he doesn't agree with me on it. Actually, that's not true. We actually did some stuff on criminal justice together. And the thing I liked most about Hakeem was, you know, he wasn't trying to change the entire system because there weren't the votes there to do that. So he changed what he could. Uh, Some people call that incremental. Some people, I guess, uh, pejoratively would call that small-minded. Neither one of us did. Um, It helped helped a a group of people who needed help. So I kind of thought he might run for mayor of New York. I used to call him Mr. Mayor when I saw him, uh, or ultimately governor of New York, but he seems to be doing pretty well right where he is. So that is the Democrat nominee for speaker. And as much as I liked Akeem personally, I don't want him to be the Speaker of the House. I want the Republican nominee, uh, and that's Kevin McCarthy. And we've talked about this this drama that is getting that is unfolding now, but it's getting ready to unfold even in a worse Way So Hakeem Jeffries will be the nominee for the Democrats. Uh, the vote is, if my math is right, I think January 3rd. It's the first vote you actually cast as a brand new member of the House. First vote you cast is, uh, well, there may be a quorum call to make sure you're there, but the first vote of substance that you cast is for the Speaker. So we have the two nominees. The Democrats have nominated, nominated Hakeem and the Republicans have nominated Kevin. So now off to the House floor we go. Um, I will be willing to bet you that every Democrat votes for Hakeem Jeffries. I don't think there's going to be a single defection. Right now, we know at least five Republicans have said they're not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. I hear it could be more than that that are kind of uh, mulling it. Uh, And when I say mulling it, I I don't mean to minimize that people have convictions and principles. There are people that have convictions and principles, and they just don't believe they can do something. But that's not most of them. Most of them want something. They want something for their yes vote. They want to extract something, some negotiation. So what's going to happen? I mean, five five Republican defections 
uh, keeps Kevin McCarthy from becoming speaker, surely to goodness, House Republicans are not dumb enough to play chicken long enough that a Democrat wins the speakership of the House. That that would be you have you have forfeited your ability to govern if you make a mistake uh, that large. So what's going to happen? Will any of the five change their minds? Are they simply negotiating for things that they want from McCarthy? And if he gives them what they want, here's what I can here's what I can guarantee you. There's another group of five and then another group of five and then another group of five ad infinitum that are also going to try to, in essence, hold Kevin hostage and extract something from him. So and you may be wondering, well, what is it that people want? I mean, do they want like committee assignments? I mean, that's an endless game. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to be on the Ways and Means Committee or Energy and Commerce or Financial Services or Judiciary. But everyone can't be on those committees. So someone's not going to get what they want. And this is a group of of folks. These are not CPAs, medical doctors, school teachers. These are folks who are pretty well versed in politics. And when they see one group negotiating with Kevin to get X, you better believe there's going to be another group that says, well, hang on a second. That didn't look too hard. All you got to do is play hard to get. How about the folks that aren't playing the game? I mean, you you think they're just going to sit there and let all the plumb committee assignments or things they don't agree with go into effect just because five or 10 or 15 or 20 people decide that they're going to you know, play chicken and hold Kevin McCarthy hostage. I, I heard that one wants some concessions on spending, on debt and deficits. And that certainly used to be one of the lines of demarcation or differentiation between the two parties. It used to be that Republicans wanted to spend less because they, they had a more limited view of the role of government. Uh, and maybe that is still true. I just find that interesting because I could have sworn the debt and the deficit went up when the Republicans controlled the House and Republicans controlled the Senate and there was a Republican in the White House. And not just President Trump. I could have sworn the debt and the deficit went up under President Bush and also President Bush. And I think it's going to go up under the next Republican president, too, for all of time, unless and until there are changes made to mandatory spending. Because that's the driver of the debt and the deficit. It's not foreign aid. It's not this government program or that government program. It's mandatory spending. So unless and until someone decides, well, we're going to tackle that, which may not be politically popular. In fact, it's pretty well guaranteed not to be politically popular. Then I'm not sure what all the talk about the debt and the deficit. It goes up under both parties. It's just a question of how much it goes up under both parties. So that's one. I mean, one of the five I've heard talking about debt and deficits, and that's definitely a conversation to be had. But I'm telling you, when I sat there during State of the Union addresses under Republican presidents, I never heard anything about debt and deficits, not even in the State of the Union address. So why all of a sudden it is now Kevin McCarthy's responsibility to control the debt and the deficit when the entire Republican Party didn't do it when they had the House of Senate and the White House? I'm not I'm not sure. Others want changes made to the way bills are brought to the floor. That's kind of inside baseball, but it's important to some members. Others, you know, aren't sure what they want. 
Um, and then there are still others that are, you know, quite frankly, case studies in what the psychologist and the psychiatrist tell us um, is called the dark triad. And if you're not sure what the dark triad is, look it up. All three are bad. We'll just leave it there. How's that? There are some members who just like to inflict the maximum amount of pain they can to others. And they are happiest when they are inflicting this pain on members of their own conference. Not many, not many, but I can certainly think of one. And there's no rhyme or reason. So if you're trying to negotiate with them, it's like negotiating with a terrorist. There, there is no rhyme or reason because what they want is you to be unsuccessful. That's what they want. So you, you can't like negotiate and haggle like you are over the price of a car or a house or a set of golf clubs. That's not what they want. What they want is life to be miserable for you. So my guess is Kevin's not going to get that one in particular. So how do you negotiate with members who want different things, knowing full well that whatever you give this group of five or 10 or 20, some other group of five or 10 or 20 is going to come to you and say, well, we either want the exact opposite or we want something different, but for a group that claims to not like earmarks or special legislation, that's what's going on now. Each little cabal, each little group wants their wants their own thing. And of course, lay aside the fact that we've already had the primary. That was in November. It's, it, it, it's like having a nominee for president and you say, well, we're not going to support you for president. Even though you ran on a platform and you told us what you're going to do, it, it's, it's, it's the most Mind-numbing thing. I should have started with this. I'll, I'll do it here. Just factor all of what I'm telling you through the prism of knowing that I am biased towards Kevin McCarthy. He was and remains a friend of mine. And you should factor in. Um, bias is always relevant. You should factor that bias in when you make up your own mind as to, to the reasonableness of what other people are doing. I suspect many people have certain implicit or explicit biases. I'm just confessing mine to you. He was one of the first people I met when I got there, and I still talk to him on a regular basis. Although I'll say this, just because someone is biased doesn't mean they can't be right. Nevertheless, it's something you should consider. In the past, McCarthy backed down. You know, when Boehner was dethroned, Kevin was next in line. Of course, you know, Eric Cantor lost in a primary. Kevin was next in line. And Kevin backed down. He won, just like this time he won in the conference. He was the overwhelming choice of Republicans to be our speaker candidate. But just like this time, he didn't have 218 votes. And he didn't want to put the conference through a public spectacle on the floor of the House. He didn't want to embarrass the Republican Party. So he ran, he won the primary, but he couldn't get to 218 because there was yet another group that wanted X, Y, or Z from him. And he wasn't going to do it, but he also wasn't going to put the party through a nightmare of a contentious public floor fight. Uh, so he backed down to avoid hurting the larger group. And that is how we got Speaker Paul Ryan, who, by the way, they didn't like him either. But Kevin is not going to back down this time. So something's going to have to give. Those opposed to him are going to have to say exactly what it is that they want. 
And then we can judge whether or not that's reasonable. And then we can judge what other groups are going to come up with whatever they want. They're also going to have to say who they prefer as a candidate for speaker and why that person wasn't nominated or didn't offer or wasn't considered the first time around in November when they had the chance. So those are the two things that I factor in my bias, but those are the two things I most want to know. What is it exactly you want him to do? What is it you want him to change? What set of rules? What what do you want him to do differently? And number two, who is it that you think 218 Republicans are going to coalesce around? And why didn't that person run the first time? I mean, you're third in line for the presidency. You mean to tell me that, that, that you're just going to grudgingly? Also, let me add, the Speaker of the House job is among the most miserable jobs I, I, I've ever been privy to. All of your time fundraising, primarily for people with really, really short memories. So you're going to go find someone that's going to put their life on hold, spend their weekends and their off weeks not in their district, but traveling the country, trying to raise money to keep the majority for a group of ungrateful people who don't have good memories. And oh, by the way, when you get to Washington, whatever goes bad is your fault. And whatever good has happened, you have to deflect the praise. There's not like a ton of people that are willing to fit that job description. But if you found one, by all means, tell us who it is. And then tell us why they weren't interested in November when we had the primary. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Now to Idaho. The murder of four college students uh, remains unsolved. No arrests have been made if the police have a suspect. We don't know about it. If the police have forensic evidence, we don't know about it. And the police should not and do not share everything with the public. And I, you just trust me. I understand the frustration of the public. Even more so, I understand the frustration of the families, uh, the parents, the grandparents, the siblings of the four murder victims. And police and prosecutors very much want to keep the family up to speed on the case. I'm sure they want to keep us, too, even though we don't have the same interest in it. But they're not going to do anything that's going to jeopardize the investigation. And oftentimes, the disclosure of information does jeopardize the investigation. Here's when you know it doesn't. Here's when you know it won't. If they, not through a leak, but if they publicly say, this is what we're looking for. This is what we need help with. Then you will know that they need the information worse than they need the confidentiality. Otherwise, um, number one, if you're a lawyer, if you're a prosecutor, there are ethical rules that keep you from disclose, from discussing evidence publicly. But they're just ethical rules. And sometimes the prosecutors go to the cops and say, look, I'm bound by a set of ethical rules. So you should be, too. You should not be discussing evidence. More, more often, it is there are certain things that only the killer would know. So why would you put information in the public domain that some nut job? I mean, I'm going to talk about this case in a second, but y'all may recall someone confessed to the killing of John JonBenet Ramsey. They flew him back to the United States. 
He had nothing to do with it. I don't even think he was in the United States when that precious child was killed. But there are nuts who want publicity so bad that they will say they did something, even though they didn't. So you want to keep a lot of this information out of the public domain. If it's something only the killer knows, you want it to remain that way. Cases are usually solved within hours or days of the offense. And this one, this one has taken longer. And some don't ever get solved. And I hate saying that, but it's true. Um, but this is something I don't hate saying. The police never stop working on them. Never. I, I don't I don't know if I'm gonna make it on the other side, but if I do and I get to ask questions, I'm gonna ask. Who killed John Bonet Ramsey? That unsolved case has haunted me since it first happened. Perhaps you remember it. Perhaps you were you feel the same way I do about it. Who could possibly ever harm a child? How did it happen? Why did it happen? I mean, there's usually a window in every investigation in which you have a chance. If you do this interview or that interview, if you talk to this person, if you can access this piece of evidence, then you have a chance. But when that window closes, it gets tougher. That said, not to end this on uh, a down note, which is hard to avoid since we're talking about homicide. There was a terrible killing in my hometown uh, of Spartanburg, South Carolina, back in the 1990s. It's beautiful a young woman who, who was a wife and a mother. She owned a hair salon. She was killed and sexually assaulted in her place of business. It happened to be a mobile home or a trailer that had been converted into a beauty salon. And there was there was one witness who saw a man outside the shop, but but that was it. And uh, this witness did the best she could, but you know it, it was dark. She was terrified. Terrified. So that's what we had. We had that, and we had. A very, very small DNA sample found on the victim's stomach. And it was found by a very, very hardworking forensic tech, someone who processes crime scenes. That's a whole separate group of law enforcement that are not, not out there stopping cars. They're not out there even interviewing murder suspects. They process crime scenes and they find the forensic or scientific evidence in this particular crime scene investigator found a very small DNA sample on her stomach. But as you probably know, DNA and fingerprints are only useful if you have someone to compare them to. I mean, you can link DNA to someone, but you need both the known sample and the unknown piece of evidence. So you are welcome to compare my DNA profile with that found at a crime scene. It's not going to be a match. But if you want to find the killer, then you have to compare the killer's DNA to the DNA found in the crime scene. And here, the police just had the sample from her stomach and nothing to compare it with. Uh, the police had a description of a vehicle that was seen in the area, but the lead agent was so certain the owner of that vehicle had nothing to do with the murder, he put it in writing. In the case file, the owner of the blue and white Bronco had nothing to do with the killing of Dana Satterfield. Stop stopping the car. Quit stopping the car. And so a decade passes. Murder is unsolved. Uh, the case is cold by any definition of cold, except 
the men and women working on that unsolved murder never gave up. They never gave up. And then lo and behold, a decade later, a young woman walks into an auto shop to get her oil changed. And that young woman happened to be Dana Satterfield's daughter. She had all grown up. And it sparked something in the mind of one of the young men who worked there in that auto shop. He thought it was nothing, but he decided to call a hotline and pass it on anyway. And then one thing led to another and to another. And there I was sitting on Kiowa Island playing in a golf tournament as the district attorney for my hometown and the sheriff called. He said, are you sitting down? I was not, but I told him I was. And I'll never forget the next words that came out of his mouth. We think we know who killed Dana Satterfield. That one tip and lots and lots of police work led to a suspect. And his DNA was a match for the sample taken from the stomach of Dana Satterfield. And he was convicted, sentenced to life without parole. Was not a death penalty eligible case because he was 17 years of age at the time he committed this murder. For 10 years, he got away with it. But the police never stopped working. So we should never stop thinking. And we should never stop asking, what is the status of this investigation? And do we know something? Did we hear something? Yes. Yes. Dana's children and husband lived long enough to know who killed their mother and wife. But the memory I have from that courtroom when the defendant was sentenced to life without parole was, interestingly enough, not her children and not her husband. It was her parents. Ten years after having a child taken from them, finally, finally, justice was done. And they knew who killed their daughter. There is no statute of limitation on peace, on finding peace, on finding justice, on seeking the truth. The police will never stop working on an unsolved homicide. So we should never start stop wondering, is there something we know that could possibly help? All right, let's end with something lighter. The final four set, Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and Ohio State. Two teams from the Big Ten. Uh, there have been two teams from the SEC before, so it's not unprecedented. Uh, Southern Cal was in, but they lost their championship game to Utah. I mean, take nothing away from Utah. They played great, but Southern Cal quarterback was hurt. And now Southern Cal is out of the playoffs because they lost the championship game, and Ohio State is in, even though they did not even make it to their own championship game. So is it, is it, are these the right four? Probably. Most people would tell you I'm obviously biased towards Alabama, which you don't have to listen to this very podcast very long. I mean, I'm biased towards South Carolina, but I can't really make an argument that us at eight and four should have made it into the college playoffs. You know, Alabama probably did have an argument, but here's here's one thing I think we can all agree on. Four is not enough for a playoff. 64 is too much. I don't want those kids playing that number of football games, but what what is the right number for a college playoff system? I, I actually think Alabama probably was one of the four best teams, um, but they didn't make it. And that was probably reluctantly, I hate to say it, the right decision. Um, they lost two games. Soon the playoffs will be eight teams or 12 teams, and it will 
hurt then to be the ninth or 13th team on the outside looking in. Today, it's Southern Cal and Alabama. Don't know who it's going to be in years to come, but four is not enough. That's my opinion, but I'd like to hear yours. All right, we've run the gamut from Congress to homicide to college football. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to visiting with you again on Tuesdays with Trey. Take care of yourself. Bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.